If you enjoy the conversations in this podcast and want to help us continue to provide great content for the community, please consider supporting our work by becoming a friend of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the JCC. As a friend, you'll receive insider access to artists and VIP events, special passes to arts programs, and unique gifts from the JCC. To learn more, please visit jccmanhattan.org slash friends hyphen AI. Welcome to 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. This week, we're listening to Idealism and Activism, a conversation featuring choreographer Bill T. Jones with Rabbi Ayelet Cohen. Bill T. Jones is a multi-talented artist, choreographer, dancer, artistic director, and writer who has, over a 40-plus year career, received distinguished honors including the National Medal of Arts, a MacArthur Genius Award, a Kennedy Center Honor, and two Tony Awards for Best Choreography. Rabbi Ayelet Cohen, a former center head at the JCC, is currently Senior Director of the New Israel Fund for New York and the Tri-State Region. This talk was recorded before a live audience on January 18th, 2016. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream. One day, this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills, Sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was really very moving. Um, I thank you very much. Um, the uh, JCC, wonderful uh, people I have met here, um, Megan Whitman, who introduced me, who actually invited me, and uh, Rabbi Cohen, who will be helping me this evening. 
Um, I have a cold, so I am not in best voice, but uh, the spirit is strong. I was speaking to Robbie Cohen in the green room a while back, and she said, well, what do you think you'll be focusing on? Uh, we have to be clear tonight, ladies and gentlemen. It's a, I said to her, Martin Luther King Day brings out the best and worst in me. I don't want anything too easy. So you want to be with an artist tonight? An artist is oftentimes an extremely conflicted person. Artists are not here to tell us what we always want to hear or make us feel what we want to feel. Can we be agreed about that? I think that this day and that fantastic speech makes some of us very lazy. And it's a feel good. I feel good. But, but, we hanged our harps upon the willows, for there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required us mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. So why do I start there? A lot of my life has been trying to understand who and what I am. Some people call it identity politics. I don't know what you call it. Something special happened um, when I met a young Jewish Italian man named Arnie Zane, born in the Bronx. His father, Lon, loved his mother, Edith, so much, Edith Zacklin, Alonzo Zampano, that he actually converted to Judaism to be with her. And then they went to the phone book and tried to find a neutral name, Zane. <laughs> By rights, his name is uh, Zampano. But it was not quite, it was ethnic in the wrong way. Now, this is the man who I fell in love with. This is the man who lived his whole life in some ways like this. So my remarks tonight, trying to organize it, and I'm not a very organized person, actually. They could be life before Arnie, life with Arnie, and life after Arnie. I'm married now to a wonderful man here, uh, Bjorn Amalon, born in uh, Haifa. Um, and uh, he and I have been together 20, 22 years. Uh, so I, with all respect, he allows me this space. Because when I talk about artistic identity, it's hard not to talk about the identity of that couple when I was so young. 1971, Central Park. I just left the collective of kind of post-hippie types that I was a member of in upstate New York. And it was my time on the big stage. The Joffrey Ballet, um, Charles Moore, many, many people like that performing. And I came out in a pair of very high shoes, white wooden shoes. 
dressed, I thought, elegantly. Somebody said I looked like a waiter. Um, and I began to do this strange dance. One, one, four, three, eight, two, six, four, six. One, one, four. When I was a little boy, three, eight, I received a little card in the mail. Six, two, eight. When I was a little boy, I received a little card in the mail. When I was a little boy, I went back to the place I was born, Bunnell, Florida. I was sitting on the steps with my two old aunties, four, three, eight, Aunt Mattie and Aunt Purity Rogers. Aunt Mattie said to me, Billy, six, you ain't going to do like your brother Irie did. He went up north and married a girl. Because if you marry a girl, you can't come down here and visit us no more. And I said, Auntie, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Identity. History, form, conflict, life before Arnie. My dad was a um, simple man. He had a sixth grade education. My mother had a third grade education. They had uh, 12 children. I am number 10. We were uh, potato pickers. And uh, my dad was an entrepreneur in the American tradition. So he wanted to become a black Yankee, which meant that he would take all of his brood, plus the men and women who wanted a better life, up that long road, harvesting fruits and vegetables along the way. The Finger Lakes region which is what I still dream about now, was where the good money was, the long money. Now, I say this, I can hardly remember. I can't believe it. Can you imagine? You know what a 100 pounds bag of potatoes looks like? 100 pounds, 12 cents. That was long money. That's what we were doing. My dad wanted to be a black Yankee. So that's why I speak with a Yankee accent, because my dad was angry about being in the South, where the books that we were in inherited were books that came from folk kids across town. Sometimes scribbled, obscenities written in them. And if you had a eighth grade education in the South, when they came north, they put you back into the fifth or sixth grade. 
my dad wanted to be a black Yankee. I met Arnie at the State University of New York at Binghamton. I was a drama student there, having started um, performing on stage in my high school. Um, the Music Man, those of you who've read my book, please forgive me going over this, but I say it, somehow it makes, when I try to speak and speak in a place like this and to people like you, I want you to know the deal. So um, Mary Lee Shapey, bless her, she gave me the role, the Buddy Hackett role in the film of the Music Man. Oh, a woman who kisses on the very first date is usually a hussy. And a woman who kisses on the second time out is anything but fussy. But a woman who kisses on the third time round, head in the air, feet on the ground. She's the girl you're glad you found. She's your shapoopy, shapoopy, shapoopy. The girl that's hard to get. You know the song, don't you? Well, that was my first time on the stage before Arnie's AIDS. It was a big success. Problem. There's a scene where everybody is supposed to dance, girls and boys, but my school had probably that many black kids in it. This is a school in upstate New York, German, Italian, nice, decent people. And there was concern that I would dance with a girl. So I got a solo. <laughs> I know. I know you feel bad for me and all, but you know, well, this is the ego of an artist, identity, hungry, hungry to be seen. Principles be damned. It's my time, right? So that night I got up there and I did what I saw James Brown do. I cut, I acted up, I did everything. And my whole little town stood up on its feet, standing ovation improvising, making it up, making what was part of me shameful, misunderstood, but in that moment cramming it into the present and they stood up. Identity. Going to the u university and I meet one night across the room this uh, strange looking short guy unlike everybody else, because everybody else had long hair, and his hair was very short. And I had never, I didn't know what homosexuality was. I knew I had these feelings, and I knew I liked him. So what do you do? How do you make someone's attention? You know, he's over there, so I have a glass of Schlitz. <laughs> so I sophisticatedly drink it, and then lick the rim. <laughs> and then I leave. Oops, okay, that's it. Well, true to form, he sends my sister-in-law after me, said, who was that guy? I'd like to meet him. And we became a unit, and he died in my arms 17 years later in our house, the same house that my husband and I live in now. Identity. And the world changed. As I told a group of um, journalists in Cannes and around that time, I said, I, was, I am the surviving member of a celebrated interracial homosexual duet company. <laughs> oh, and they loved that. They wrote that down and you know, I was fed it, fed it, fed it. 
But what does it mean when you've been a member of an interracial, never homosexual or, or heterosexual, and the white man dies? What does it mean? Could we see the clip, please? And keep Dr. King in your mind as you're watching. I said at that time that I was looking for, well, artistic identity. I am a postmodern dancer choreographer. There was three, four hundred years of classical ballet, and then there was the advent of certain persons like Loie Fuller, dancing with lots of fabric and making herself into an orchid, a butterfly, somewhere around the late 19th century, early 20th century. She was a sensation. And then there was this person named Isadora Duncan. Isadora Duncan saw America dancing, long-legged men and women, and it was going to, they were going to show the world dances. No one had ever seen it. Get rid of your corsets, barefoot. And this thing called modern dance was invented. Fast forward a little while, and we have Charles Weidman, Doris Humphrey, traveling around the world, borrowing from various cultures, doing a pastiche of a Spanish dance, uh, a, Hindu, a Hindu dance, what have you. And there was Ruth St. Dennis, a woman who was able to imitate um, in a very American way all of the great dancers of e Asia or the Virgin Mary. And then there was Martha Graham, uh, short, tough little woman who had a huge uh, spirit, who was talking about union uh, psychology, thinking like a woman thinks. The vagina was not a shame. The vagina was where life came from. And men, as Paul Taylor would say, she said she used men like dildos. <laughs> oh, well, he would know, right? So uh, by that, she, what it meant to be a woman creator in a man's world. And then there was Merce Cunningham, who came out of her company. Merce Cunningham took, care, took away with all storytelling, all psychology. It was all about form and, uh, um, I wouldn't say symbols. No, he was not interested in symbols at all. That's too psychological. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to help me with this, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then there was a generation that came in the 60s that were trying to combine ideas about um, form and games. Um, very much trying to free the body from, as uh, Evan Von Rainer, a great practitioner, said, Martha Graham's vocabulary had her neurosis uh, mapped on it, and they wanted to be rid of neurosis. They wanted to reinvent. You know how the youth are. They're always going to reinvent. And then my generation comes along. We call ourselves postmodern. Now, postmodern dance was supposed to be, when I came into it, it had no gender. It had no color. It had no class. Lovely idea, isn't it? One that I'm still pissed as hell about right now because I bought it. Um, Postmodern dance taught there was such a thing as a neutral body. I don't need to anything because I am neutral. I am sculpture. I am all potentiality. But guess what? Not all bodies are neutral, are they? So 
This postmodern body working with Arnie Zane was one thing. It was another thing when suddenly it wanted an identity and it began, he began to look for an authentic black voice. Uh, let's leave black out. He was looking for an authentic voice. Because one thing modernism supposedly offered us was everybody was their own point of origin. No one owed anything to history. Everybody was their own work in progress, their own genius. But were they all equal? Who was in the audience? Who was scribbling about what it meant? What did it mean when I brought my mother on stage to pray as she would in her church? In a secular space at the Brooklyn Academy of Music with 2,000 people there. What is he doing? I said that I was trying to conjure a real person of faith. And one way that was done, every night she stood on stage. I asked her to come on. She lived in San Francisco. She was very proud, even as you will see in some pretty uh, risque situation, she always maintained her identity as a, a sister of the church. She would come on, and I asked her to bless the proceedings. And she got into it. We traveled all over the world. And she'd come on and say, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I hope y'all will uh, just allow Sister Jones here a moment. And then she would begin to pray. And she could, in a moment, she and God, together, no matter where we were. Please, Lord, take care of my son with whatever it is he thinks he's doing. <laughs> she didn't understand, but she knew it's what I was doing. Identity, art, history, the future. That piece toured all over the world. That piece was, uh, is taught in classes now as a piece about identity politics. Where are we now? Race, what is it? Race loyalty. Race fatigue. Looking forward, looking backwards. Mr. Obama said the other night, that's the America I know. That's the country we love, clear-eyed, big-hearted, undaunted by challenge, optimistic, optimistic that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. I believe in change because I believe in you, the American people, and that's why I stand here confident as I have ever been that the state of our union is strong. I love that man. He has awarded me twice. <laughs> but you know what? I don't completely buy that. Are we really big-hearted? Mm-hmm, I see the head shaking. That's what I mean. This day can make us lazy. It's, he's not lazy. This is his job. 
to inspire, right? But is there room to say, we got work to do? Is there room to say, no, 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 no. We are not big hearted. We know we're not. What do we do with, I have a dream. I wanted to cry tonight when he was saying it. I always want to cry when I hear it. In recently, um, and this is not about him, it's about the artist. What does an artist have to do? I'm often asked because I'm seen as an artiste engagé, an engaged artist, as opposed to an artist that is dealing with abstraction. I think that's where it comes from, French intellectuals, right? I am artiste engagé, which means I'm engaged in the world. And someone will say, OK, Mr. Jones, what should an artist do? And this is my great line. I, if you've heard it before, please forgive me. I say an artist does not have to do a goddamn thing. The artist should be the freest among us. They should be running sometimes literally naked through the streets thumbing their nose at all received wisdom. Ah, but the artist is a person. What does that person need to do? Now this is where it gets murky. That person is a woman who, is, who has a lot of reasons to be angry at patriarchy. That person is a Chinese whose parents were forefathers were brought here to build railroads. That person is a black person who feels that White House was built by slaves, but how long did it take for one of us to be in it? So the artist is the freest among us. They should be, and they do not have to be nice. Dr. King, I love you, my dear, dear brother. I do not mean any disrespect. His job was to make us cry year after year and to pull millions together in a vision that I have a dream that someday we will all hold hands. I don't know. I don't mean to make cheap jokes. But how are you feeling about that? Yeah? The Messiah is coming. He's coming. The Messiah is coming. Some got tired of waiting, right? But this is not about telling you how you should think. This is how an artist works in trying to find their own morality their own reason. Why make the next work? Why make another work? Oh, it's my job. It's how I make a living. It's what the world expects of me. Where do you dig down and find that thing that you want to? How did this from the uh, say about we hung our harps in the trees? We hanged our harps upon the willows, for there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required us mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. What is this saying? 
I refused to sing for you because I was your slave. Now, he is saying, free at last, free at last. Let it go, Bill. Let it go. Sing. The world needs your singing. Don't hold back because of some hurt. That's what I think I'm hearing him say when I read this. What do you think, the artist? I'm reading Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates and wanted to share this quote with you. Anybody read the book yet? It is the text, right, of the era. He's speaking, as you know, of course, to his son. The birth of a better world is not ultimately up to you. Though I know each day there are grown men and women who tell you otherwise. The world needs saving precisely because of the actions of these same men and women. I'm not a cynic. I love you. And I love the world. I love it more with every new inch I discover. But you are a black boy. And you must be responsible for your body in a way that other boys cannot know. Indeed, you must be responsible for the worst actions of other black bodies, which somehow will always be assigned to you. And you must be responsible for the bodies of the powerful. The policeman who cracks you with a nightstick will quickly find his excuse in your furtive movements. And this is not reducible to just you. The women around you must be responsible for their bodies in a way that you will never know. You have to make your peace with the chaos, but you cannot lie. You cannot forget how much they took from us and how they transfigured our very bodies into sugar, tobacco, cotton, and gold. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Irony sometimes is the only weapon a thinking person has. We can talk about that. But lest I leave us on a kind of an ambiguous note, Dr. King, could we play, this is how I answered the question for myself, that three years, I see when was this, Arnie Zane died in 88? I think Uncle Tom's Cabin was probably hmm, 90. This is how I was answering that question about the me and the us. The last part of the piece, Julius Hempel's Long Tongue Sextet playing children's song, and the rest is pretty clear. So. After all three hours of struggle and questioning, like I've been doing tonight, I was able to convince people across the nation, we did it a couple of times in Europe, not professionals, people who really, I wanted the people in their community. Imagine everybody in this room being so committed to the idea that we were not afraid. You realize this is in the era of AIDS. We were not afraid of each other's bodies. We were not afraid to be seen naked by our communities. 
And we would all be singing like children and bathe in a golden light. That was then. I don't know where I end up, but tonight this is who you meet. I want to get back there. We call the piece Last Supper at Uncle Tom's Cabin, The Promised Land. This is the vision of the promised land. How to earn it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Seventy Six West is brought to you by Zabar's and Zabar's.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, roasting his own coffee and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabar's. Respect the customer. Never ever stint on quality. Offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store at 80th and Broadway or visit zabars.com for mouthwatering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world famous caviar. Zabar's ships to all 50 United States and Puerto Rico. So there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabar's any day of the week. Thank you. So how to earn the vision of a promised land. Mm -hmm. It's a tall order. Mm -hmm. I'm very struck by what you said about how an artist must be free. Mm -hmm. to discover who they are, to be who they are. To contradict themselves. And exactly that contradiction. Mm -hmm. Why do we make art? Why does art exist? It reminds me of um, a challenge that's often asked of, of rabbis. Is a rabbi's job to provide comfort for their congregation, to create a place where they're comfortable and safe? Or is a rabbi's job to challenge the mm. congregation, to push them past where they might want to go, to try to lead them somewhere? And there are very strong feelings on both ends and very different styles. And I think the same question mm -hmm. is often asked of artists. Are you there to provide people a beautiful experience of theater? Are you there to make people uncomfortable? And I, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about where you stand in mm -hmm. that contradiction and on that continuum, because I know you've created work that does many things. Does many things. And I believe that the most important thing I could say is that I do believe in beauty, and I do believe that there is something potentially transformative in, in art and beauty. So my job, the only thing I really can do other than running around thumbing my nose at people and shocking them, is to make something crafted very well, something that's sincere, something that has soul to it, put it out there in front of the audience, in front of the world, as you would your favorite child, and then let the world have a go at it. 
and then make another one, and then another one. And hopefully build a community of lookers and feelers. No guarantee. As we know, many artists die completely unsung, unknown. That's the contract. Do you think that because you work in, in beauty, you have a power to reach people more deeply, I think on the soul level? If someone's going to a political speech, they know that they're mm. getting a political speech. If someone's going to a night at the ballet, they might be seeking different things. Do you have more power in some ways than a politician? I don't know if about more power, but I do think I have different tools. And um, I am always, there's something subversive in uh, the way that I sometimes think about setting up an expectation and then undercutting it. But then undercutting it and then spinning it in a way, that's where it will spin it in such a way that they feel, that the audience feels, oh. And you know, you've heard that term, the aha moment and the oh moment. Now, oh moments are very expensive. <laughs> you know, um, that is, the sublime. Um, what is the sublime definition of a transcendentalist? It is um, beauty verging on, no, awe verging on terror. The sublime. There's maybe in your life you might make one or two works that have that aspect of the sublime. Now you, in your job, you're supposed to be able to drop that regularly, right? <laughs> yeah? Yeah, all verging on terror. You know the story of Job, right? The story of Job is very important in Uncle Tom's Cabin. Mm -hmm. I dance it with my dancers being the devil, and we're playing it to Miles Davis's round midnight. That clothes get ripped off, and then it's a very powerful story, as you well know, and a rabbit told me that the story actually, the original story, stopped with Job in the ashes, covered with boils, crying out, oh my God, when will I get my day in, in, in court? Later on, it was God returns everything. But the most beautiful thing is God in his whirlwind or her God in her whirlwind silence. My God, how do you describe, oh, how do you live with the notion that God has a whirlwind silence? And I'm standing here and saying, why? I mean, for me, being able to inhabit those places of uncertainty, being able to, to dwell in the vulnerability and to look into the fear is sometimes where that sublime happens. Mm. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about faith mm -hmm. and how that plays into your work and your life. 
we started off by hearing Dr. King, mm -hmm. a preacher. You talked about your mother praying on the stage. Yes. And the first theater I ever saw was my mother on Christmas morning. Say more about that. Uh, well, it's a, very, it's a very precious story. I've told it a lot, but you know, my mother was a big woman, and she had lots of children, and we were you know, little ones, and we would be, had to be in bed, and Fanta was coming, and there was a tree, and all that other, and we couldn't sleep, but we fell asleep, and next thing you know, you'd be awakened at dawn. Half awake now, and everyone had to come around and kneel wherever you could, you know, here or here, and it's, at that time, the whole family would get together, extended family, and then she would start this prayer. Uh, please, Lord, please cry and save you. And then it would, she would advance. Bless such and such who was a baby. Bless such and such who was having a problem with drinking. Bless such and such. And then she would go and bless my helpmate, Lord. He is weak. Help him. And then she would talk about the soldiers going across overseas and the people in Washington, D.C. And, and then when my face has become like a looking glass. And my, um, what was it? My bed has become like a public road. And all scorn me and turn away from me, Lord. You know, Lord, you know. And it becomes very much about this. And she would have what the Greeks called a theolipidic experience. This ecstasis, where she would go completely into talking to God about the most profound experience of being alive. Now, imagine that you're three or four years old, and this is what Christmas morning is. And she is wet, completely wet, and wailing until she's spent. Y'all go open the gifts. Now, you know? So, I'm saying that was the image I had of what theater is supposed to be aspiring to. Revelation at home. Yeah, revelation and complete exposure. You know? But, connected to something unassailable. The only difference, big difference, I have the inner, the infrastructure of a Southern Baptist, but I don't have the faith. So I have this other thing, which I think is called art, and that's where the faith is, as shabby as it may be. Maybe reinterpret it. <laughs> is there anything that you don't use in your work any language, any experience that you choose not to draw on? Mm -hmm. um, I am a depressive, and I have, um, it took me a while to understand that that was literally something that was not just artistic temperament. So I have to be very careful of what I give myself to. I have to protect my heart. So I used to go for it. I did talking solos where the whole idea of the talking solo was to set myself on fire and to literally go into a trance like my mother. And anything that I would have to say, and oftentimes very difficult, strong emotions would come out so much that people would the next day be looking at me like, wow, man, where did you go last night? You know, that's a young man's game. Uh, the heart is too fragile with time, even though I say it has a callus on it with time. But I have to protect that. I don't want 
to hurt you psychically. I don't want to hurt you psychically. I used to. I used to want to beat you up good. No more. No. I'm no moral authority. I have no right to do that. So I don't. Can I make something so beautiful that your heart opens up and your head opens up? That's my job right now. And I want him to be proud of me. I don't want him to worry about my health, my mental health. I want him to know that he can trust me. I'm taking care of Dora Amalon and Aaron Amalon's boy. You know, and something that what I put on stage. Mm -hmm. If we can stay in this realm of mm -hmm. emotion for mm -hmm. a little while, I wanted to talk a bit about anger, mm. which you talked a lot about. Yeah. And if you can talk about how that figures in your work and in your reaction to others' reactions mm. to your work. <laughs> Oh, oh, that sounds like a trick question. What, what? <laughs> I'm not a reviewer. <laughs> well, uh, did, you all, did you all see the article in the New York Times about this event? Mm -hmm. Oh, it was, I let you guys, you must have, that was a we big... We were very happy about that. You were very happy, yeah. right? <laughs> right. Uh, I was surprised, a picture of me doing this solo that I did last month in, uh, in a, a solo that was... <laughs> number of shapes that were actually taken from ancient Chinese sculpture, but I gave them names like uh, um, I will, or hell yes, or mmm, that's good, or shh. And then there were some that were, this would be, drop it. Drop it, boom, turn, and go to the floor. Drop it, into the floor. Now, <laughs> I think you can see where it's coming from, right? But the writer from the New York Times who reviewed it the first time, not the guy that wrote the article for you, she said it was just so loud, he wasn't listening to the music. Okay, all right. <laughs> okay, so why, did, why? Why? Why would you do that? I had no way of going to her and asking her, said, did you know, have you seen the, the, because uh, that, just that week had been released the uh, videotape of the kid being shot in Chicago. And have you seen the videotape? It's kind of like a dancer. It's breathtaking because uh, he, he, as you know, he's bumping down the street like this, and he's got like something in his hand, and the police is all the way over here, and the police does this, and you think, this is a little kid, this is a 16, 17-year-old boy, and the kid does something, actually moves away, and then, boom, and he turns like this. He, it's a stomach churning, and he goes down. And then he's down on the ground, and he's lying like this, and bang, bang, bang. all you see, they say it was 16 times, but all you see is the smoke coming. You haven't seen this? Yeah, we all saw it. Go look it up. 
So I thought that was a no-brainer. Drop it, and down. No mention of it. No mention of it. Did it make me angry? Yes, but as an artist that you read all those things in my resume, as an artist that has been, you know, I've, like I say, two times I've been given awards and so on, you're supposed to suck it up. You know, you have no right, you have no redress when you think that they are lacking. So you ask me about anger? What do you do with it? You got to put it into the next piece. You got to be more clear. Yeah, I walk around with a hot, coal of anger oftentimes. And you know who is the, the person, the object of it most often? Me. That's no fun. Is that what you meant about anger? Mm-hmm. So now let's talk about fear. Yeah. So you... They're related. They are very much related. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many ways, you are so unapologetic about who you are, and you have addressed so many issues that other people are afraid to talk about. Mm. AIDS, racism, Mm -hmm. police violence. What are you afraid of? Mm. Being inauthentic. Being revealed to be a fake. Um, Not being ready at the moment of death. I want to be ready. I need to be ready. I want to be ready. Ready to put on a long white robe. Now, Dr. King would understand that. But what kind of ready are you talking about? The Zen Buddhists have the, the notion of the art of dying, right? That every day is a rehearsal for that last moment. I need to be ready. I want to be ready. I had a dream last week. We were in an airplane, as we always are. And it was so real. And the airplane was having, and this was it. Literally, I thought it was it. And he was next to me, and I thought, well, you know, it was bound to happen. And I said, the one thing I want to know, I don't know if I said it out loud to him, but the plane was going down. I said, I love you. Then it cut. The film was outside the plane. I had realized it was a dream. But at that moment, I thought, oh my God, wouldn't it be great to have that presence of mind? Because I was terrified, but what did I do? I said to my companion, I love you. So my fear is that I will not be able to have that presence of mind really facing death. Fear. Hmm. My last question is this, this day, this Martin Luther hmm. King Day, which from an activist perspective, from a service perspective, so much skirts both this possibility to enable people's laziness. We'll give mm-hmm. you a day of service so the rest of the year you can <laughs> feel really good about what you did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or it can be a day of inspiration. Yes. Do this today and remember what it feels like 
and how urgent it is and what you need to do every day. And you're giving me a gift now because the other day at the, I was also being honored at the American, I'm sorry, Association of Performing Arts Presenters Conference and um, somebody mentioned something like this and I said that, um, oh, leaping people leaping on a, on, a, on a promotional reel for PBS. There was a wonderful woman there who represented PBS. Someone asked her, what about this leaping, the joy and all? And she said, oh, it's to inspire people and so on. And I said, well, you know, I was on the impression, and I heard it from a great impresario. He said, look, if you want to sell tickets, you should have uh, people leaping. And he said, men leaping. There's something about a man leaping that people, and I think the people, considering what we know, is that women buy most tickets to theatrical events. So that is the, that's what the leaping is. It's public relations. She said to me, and she said, what you, uh, I, I, I thought the leaping was about manipulation, and she said it's about inspiration. Is that what your question is? Mm-hmm. That's this day. Is this day about manipulation or is this day about true inspiration or how do we make this day yeah. inspiration and not manipulation and not laziness yes and you know what I've done here tonight I've strut and fretted my hour upon the stage and I have been as honest as I can be and I have tried to articulate with as much subtlety as I can I have tried to pay the compliment to the brains of these people who came out here in this cold night to see me that is my Martin Luther King day, mm. to talk about what this journey has been like, to be Bill T. Jones. Now, that's what I can do. Um, yeah, is that what you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Thank you. That's what I can do. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And I hope that each of us walks out here tonight thinking about what we can do. Yes. That was Bill T. Jones with Rabbi Ayelet Cohen. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Our music was written and performed by Pearl Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes, and if you can, share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome, and be sure to subscribe for future episodes.